Thank you, Felicity, for that encouragement, and thanks for reading for us. My name is uh, Peter Orr. It'd be great if you could uh, keep that passage open, because uh, we'll uh, look at it uh, together now. But let's pray and ask uh, God for his help as we look at his word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you've gathered us uh, together this morning uh, to hear you speak from your word, and we pray that as we uh, look at this passage, uh, you would increase uh, our understanding and uh, deepen our faith, and that we would uh, come away uh, changed by your word as your spirit works in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of uh, my closest friends at university was a guy that I, I shared a house with. Uh, we were very close, uh, both Christians. Uh, we used to study the Bible and, and pray together uh, in uh, the house. We both ended up uh, leading Bible study groups at uh, the Christian Union. Uh, we both took part in summer mission teams. Uh, we had the sort of friendship where we could challenge one another in our Christian lives. It was a very strong uh, Christian friendship and uh, a real encouragement uh, to me. Uh, we went our separate ways at the end of university, but we kept in touch. And uh, a year after we finished university, I received a letter from him. And this is how the letter started. Dear Peter, I am loath to write you this letter, but I miss, must let you know how I'm feeling and what has been going on in both my mind and my life recently. After a long period of conflict and confusion, I have finally accepted that my outlook on life is at great variance with the biblical account of a relationship with God. Although I cannot offer any other understanding of life, the world, God, sin, etc., than that which is logically, beautifully, and wisely given in God's Word. Nor can I find any philosophy or science to disprove it. I just don't seem to have a relationship with God in which I care about Him and what He wants me to do. Because of this, I feel the only thing I can honestly do, the only thing I can do whilst maintaining my integrity despite shattering my entire system of understanding, is to cease profession of faith in Christ as Savior. And uh, the letter continues, and uh, sadly, some uh, 25 years later, my um, friend is in the same uh, position. Although facing different issues, Paul essentially wrote the letter to the Colossians to prevent them doing what my friend did. At the end of our passage that Felicity just read for us, he assures them that they can be confident of being, being reconciled to God, verse 23, if, if you continue in your faith. Uh, Paul's purpose in writing this passage, and indeed the letter as a whole, is to convince the Colossians to continue to persevere in their faith. And so this is a really important passage for us, whether we've been a Christian for just a few months or many, many years, because the testimony of this letter, indeed of the whole New Testament, is that to a greater or a lesser extent, all of us will feel the pressure at different points and to different degrees to give up the Christian faith. And it's certain that all of us will have friends, Christian friends that we'll uh, uh, want to help who are perhaps even not going through uh, that temptation to give up. The sad reality is that you don't have to be a Christian for too long 
to see uh, even people you never thought could fall away and make a shipwreck of their faith. If we know the frailty and sinfulness of our own hearts, we know that there but by the grace of God go we. But in God's grace, he's given us passages like this, passages that he uses to keep us persevering. We want to end our lives, verse 23, continuing in our faith, established and firm, not moved out by the hope of the gospel. Uh, often when uh, maybe we, we chat to a friend who's, who's struggling uh, as a Christian, maybe our, our natural uh, reaction is just to say, well, you know, are you reading your Bible? Are you, are you praying? Are you meeting with other Christians? And those are, you know, those are good questions to ask. But interestingly, it's, it's not the approach that Paul takes in this passage. No, he does something much more profound and in a sense much more simple. He just points them to Jesus. He shows them how wonderful Jesus is. He wants them to be filled with a vision of the greatness of Jesus. That's Paul's conviction of what enables people to persevere as Christians, is if they understand and grasp and see how great Jesus is. Uh, John Calvin was a, uh, a reformer, Protestant reformer, he wrote a commentary on uh, Colossians, and he says uh, the, the reason that we are tempted to turn away from Jesus to various types of false teaching is because we don't perceive the excellence of Christ. And I think that's exactly what the conviction that is driving Paul in this passage, that it is as we perceive the excellence, the beauty, the supremacy of Christ, that we will keep going. So in this passage, Paul very simply puts Jesus Christ before our view so that we might grasp his glory, his majesty, his supremacy, his excellence. And as we're convinced of the greatness of Jesus Christ, well, that will strengthen us to, to uh, avoid the temptation that thinks that he is insufficient in some way, uh, that we need more than Jesus for our relationship with God, for our salvation, or perhaps more subtly, that we need more than Jesus to be fulfilled in life. As believers, the sad fact is that our constant temptation is to take our eyes off Jesus. But God in his grace has given us passages like this to fix our eyes uh, back on him. So let's see why far from giving up on him, uh, Jesus is worth all of our love, all of our devotion, and all of our energy. We can uh, summarize what Paul is saying about Jesus in this passage very simply, two uh, headings. Uh, Christ is supreme over creation, and secondly, Christ is supreme over new creation. So firstly, Christ is supreme over uh, creation. Uh, it's a very obvious point, isn't it? But there really is uh, nothing or no one in this world that compares to Jesus Christ. There's no person that you can meet, no theory you can grasp, no book you can read, no philosophy you can embrace, no way of life that you can live that compares to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul starts by emphasizing his superiority in his relationship to God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, and we reflected on that in the uh, kids' talk. Uh, God is invisible, 
uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament emphasize that no one has seen God or can see him. We can't discern him. We can't work him out. We need a revelation. But God has graciously given us more than simply an explanation or description of himself. In Jesus Christ, we have the image of the invisible God. Now, when we think of an image, we might think of a a, a photograph or a a copy or a model or a symbol, something uh, like that. It it sort of looks like uh, the thing that it's uh, imaging. So for us, kind of images represent uh, an object. But Paul is saying much more than Jesus represents God like a symbol. So we'll see uh, in verse 19 that, that all God's fullness dwells in Jesus. So in this context, an image means something like a real counterpart of the original. Something that shares in the very substance of the thing that it's pointing us to. So not an imitation or a, or a symbol, but something that shares in the reality that it points to. So the emphasis here is on the equality of the image and the original. All of God's fullness dwells in Jesus. Uh, you remember in John's gospel, Jesus says to, uh, to Philip, one of the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he also says in John's gospel, you know, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So Jesus images God because Jesus shares that reality, the reality of who God is. And so the implication is that we need to look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God and his character. That's wonderful news because if God could only be uh, perceived with closely reasoned theological language, then only the most brilliant could understand him. But all we have to do is to look to Jesus and we can see God. As we see him in the Gospels, as we hear him preached, we know that we are seeing, meeting with, encountering the true and living God. That's not to say that we don't need to work hard at understanding the Bible, that, you know, close uh, Reason, theological language isn't important, but it does mean that if we fail to center on Jesus, we're ultimately failing at our task of understanding God. Well, from his relationship to God, Paul turns to Jesus' relationship to creation. He is, verse 15, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Uh, A Jehovah's Witness uh, knocks on your door and uh, you begin to to chat about what you believe. And for a while, it it seems that uh, your uh, beliefs are very similar. Uh, They share the same sort of uh, moral outlook uh, as you do. They emphasize the need to believe in God. Uh, They stress the importance of love for neighbor. But as soon as the conversation turns to Jesus, uh, things start to go downhill. And it's likely that they would take you to this passage And it's likely that they would point at verse 15 and say, look, Jesus is the firstborn. Uh, Yes, he's important, but he's only a creature. He's born. He was a a creature. He's not God. He's simply the most important human being. How do you respond? 
Well, in the Bible, the firstborn son is the most important son. He's the one who will continue the family line. Uh, the firstborn son of a king would become king when the father died. Uh, because the son who was firstborn was supreme in, in that sense, uh, the term firstborn could uh, sort of take on this idea of being supreme. So to describe something or someone as firstborn was simply a way of saying that they were supreme. So in the Old Testament, there are verses where God talks about the nation of Israel being his firstborn or King David being uh, his firstborn. It's not as if Israel was the first nation that kind of uh, came to exist or that David was the first king to exist. No, it simply means uh, that in God's eyes, they are supreme. David is God's supreme and preeminent king. Israel are God's people above all other people. Uh, so firstborn, far from sort of denigrating Jesus and saying, you know, he's only a, uh, a human being, it, it actually points to his supremacy and heightens our understanding of him. And that seems to be the case as Paul goes on, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Far from being a creature, Christ is the creator of all creation. Uh, Paul couldn't be clearer. He says it, all things were created uh, by him. Verse 17, he's before all things. There was never a time when he was not. He is before all of creation. He created everything. He sustains the universe. It's held together by him. Uh, Paul's readers would have understood exactly what Paul was claiming about Jesus, that he was God and he is God himself. But I want us to just pause and think about one particular phrase. Uh, have a glance at what he says at the end of verse 16. <clears throat> All things were created for him. All things were created for him. Paul's not only saying that Christ created the universe, that he sustains the universe, but he's saying that Christ is the reason the universe was created. All things were created for him. The world, the universe, were created for Christ. And so it's his creation in every sense of the word. The purpose of creation is Christ. The goal of creation is Christ. Everything in creation has been created to give glory to him. You were created for Christ, to give glory to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that really flies in the face of the me-centered world that I inhabit because it tells me that I am not the center of the universe. Jesus is. It's so easy to, to think and live as if it's all about me, that the world revolves around me. So many of our struggles, I think, come back to our failure to actually believe this. Uh, think about the things that annoy us. I imagine that uh, they include being overlooked, receiving unfair criticism, uh, being asked to do something that is beneath us, uh, feeling our needs aren't being uh, met, feeling that people aren't giving us the time that we deserve, 
I'm not saying that those things uh, are, are good, that maybe we don't need to have conversations with people, but often our reaction stems from the fact that we think, really, the w- world revolves around us. But this passage reminds us that this world revolves for Jesus. He is the one who is supreme over creation. It is his creation in every sense of the word. Creation is for him. Uh, Secondly, uh, Christ is supreme over new creation. In in a way, you'd almost expect Paul to finish at verse 17. I mean, what more does he need to say? Uh, He's shown us that Jesus is supreme over all creation. He's the image of God, that he's God himself. Well, he does continue because we know that creation is not the way that it's meant to be. Its purpose of giving glory to Christ has been frustrated. And so there needs to be a a renewal, a reordering, a restructuring of creation, a new creation. And this new creation has started already because Jesus has been raised from the dead. The new creation has begun. Uh, Having been uh, raised from the dead, Jesus is described, verse 18, as firstborn from among the dead. He is supreme of this new humanity that has been raised from the dead. This new humanity that he has created, the church. And so he is the head of both old creation and new creation. So that end of verse 18, in everything, he might have the supremacy. So when you think about it, our passage stretches from the dawn of creation to the restoration of all things. It encompasses all of history and stretches out into all eternity. And Jesus Christ is at the center the whole time. Uh, The pastor of a church I went to many years ago uh, used to tell a story that you you might think is a little bit corny, but I've always remembered it. Uh, He was uh, visiting Uh, an old uh, lady, member of his congregation who'd been at at the church for years, but sadly, with age, she'd sort of lost connection with uh, reality. And my pastor asked her, my pastor who'd been her pastor for many years, asked her if she knew who he was. No, she said. Then he suddenly thought and he asked her, do you know who Jesus is? Oh yes, I know who Jesus is. And it's as if nothing existed in her world apart from Jesus. And in a sense, that is profoundly right, because compared to him, everything else pales into insignificance. Well, Paul unpacks Christ's supremacy in the new creation in two ways, his person and his work. Uh, Christ is supreme because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, We'll read on in Colossians and we'll see Uh, that there was a sort of specific heresy floating around in Colossians where people were being um, attracted to um, focus on supernatural powers, particularly angels. Uh, It sort of seems that there's a bit of an obsession in the Colossian church with with angels and, and other supernatural powers. And it seems that their particular temptation was to just view Jesus as kind of one of these other supernatural powers. So yes, significant, you know, more significant than a human being, but really only sort of like one of these uh, kind of angelic uh, powers. A a creature 
uh, even if an exalted creature, but really just a creature. But Paul's correcting that kind of throughout the letter and begins correcting it here, verse 19. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to have all his fullness uh, dwell in him. And you can see just that verse, just that little detail, how much he wants to stress it because uh, he adds the word, word all. In, in one sense, if, if you have the fullness, you have the fullness. But he's stressing all his fullness, all God's fullness dwells in Jesus. You can see that you know, he's really wanting to drive that point home. All God's fullness, all God's fullness dwells in Christ. He's underlining to the, to the Colossians that Christ is God. That he is God in all his divine essence and power. So he's supreme because of his person. He's supreme because of his work. God was not just pleased to dwell in Christ. It also pleased him through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And again, you can see the vastness of the claim. You know, Paul's just kind of, all these vast claims are just tripping off in this, in this passage. But just as everything was created through Christ, all things are recreated or reconciled through Christ. Things on earth, things in heaven. And they're reconciled by, verse 20, his blood shed on the cross. In other words, as significant as it is for me and my forgiveness, and it is significant for me and my forgiveness, the death of Christ on the cross is so much more significant than that. It is literally the key for God restoring the universe to its proper order. Uh, Jesus' blood has cosmic significance. God will reconcile all things to himself through the blood of Christ. And he'll do this whether uh, willingly or unwillingly on the last day. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, whether willingly or not. It's not as if everyone will come to a a saving relationship with God. Uh, Later on, uh, Paul will use the language of uh, peace and see it as peace that is imposed. In that sense, everyone will be reconciled uh, to God through Jesus. Every rebellion will be stopped. No one will be able to deny that Jesus is Lord, that he is supreme. The universe will be put right. It will have its proper order restored. It will be put under its proper head. Uh, Then it will finally fulfill its function to give glory to Christ. The very reason that it was created for him. Christ, the goal of creation. And that goal is ultimately realized by Christ's own blood. But as well as the cosmic significance of Christ, it does this passage does touch on the personal level. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Even though the Colossians, even though we uh, lived as enemies of Christ, ignoring him, treating the supreme creator of the universe as an irrelevance, we can be reconciled to him through his death. So that wonderfully we can stand in his sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. Uh, isn't that wonderful? Think about your own life. Think about the things that you are deeply ashamed of. Think about the things that you are so glad no one in this room knows about. Well, those things are covered, dealt with, taken away by the blood of Christ so that you stand before God uh, not as someone who needs to be ashamed of those things, but stand, you stand before God in Christ because of his blood without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't that a wonderful thought? What Jesus has done for us, that we can stand before God uh, holy in his sight. But as we said at the beginning, the key is verse 23. If you continue in your faith, if you continue trusting in Jesus, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. I guess there are two ways that we can uh, uh, give up on the faith. Uh, firstly, like my friend, we can get to the point where we just uh, outright uh, deny uh, the gospel. And there was something in, in one sense, even though it was uh, tragic and broke my heart, there was at least something uh, of integrity in my friend. He just said, I, I, I can't and I don't believe anymore. But I think more common is that we just drift away from Jesus. Not that we deny him, but the things of the world squeeze him out. Uh, think of the parable of the soils in Mark's gospel. Uh, remember the soil with the weeds that, that grow up and choke the plant. And certainly as we go on in the Christian life and as we get older, the weeds seem to get taller and more powerful. And none of us can be so arrogant to assume that we're immune from this. And that's why it's imperative, as we've been thinking, that we keep the excellence of Christ before us. The one for whom all of creation exists. The one who restores creation for his own glory by shedding his blood on the cross. Christ is everything we need. Christ reveals God to us. Christ reconciles us to God. Christ is supreme. So the Lord Jesus Christ must always be the object of our faith. No matter how mature you are as a Christian, at, this, at the core of your being, you will be simply someone who trusts in Jesus who realizes that Jesus is at the center of the universe, who realizes that Jesus is the one for whom everything was created, and who realizes that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile you to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you that he is the firstborn over all creation. We praise you that he is the firstborn from the dead. We praise you that there is no one in this universe who compares to Jesus Christ. We praise you that there is no one else to whom we can go. We pray that you would keep the excellence of Christ before us. We pray that on the last day, we would be found in him, continuing to trust in him, to glory in him and longing to know him more. And we ask it in Jesus' name.